In the face of certain environmental cataclysm, the Atlantean prophecy of drowned cities has saturated public discourse and consciousness, but that is merely one likely future. As a wealthy nation with a tradition of environmental engineering, strong centralised government, and the technological capacity to adapt, Singapore may offer a glimpse of the future and an answer to scepticism about the efficacy of climate action. But for all the talk about the merits and ills of Singapore's quote-unquote pragmatic and benevolent authoritarianism, does it really hold the keys to survival in an increasingly volatile and hostile environment? To help us answer that question, Professor Schneider Mayerson, Assistant Professor at Yale and US, reflects on the future of Singapore and the lessons this small island state could share with the rest of the world. Professor Schneider Mayerson received his bachelor's from Yale University in 2004 and his PhD from the Department of American Studies at the University of Minnesota in 2013 before spending two years as the Cultures and Energy Postdoctoral Fellow at Rice University Center for Energy and Environmental Research in the Humanities. He is currently engaged in research projects on climate change fiction, empirical ecocriticism, ecotopianism, reproduction in the time of climate change, and the environmental dimensions of life in Singapore. In this episode, after Hours brings you insights from Professor Schneider Mayerson's paper, Some Islands Will Rise, which you may read and download using the link in the description below. Among the many iconic landmarks and tourist attractions in Singapore, the super trees at the Gardens by the Bay literally stand out from the rest as a feat of engineering and an emblem of Singapore's techno-natural aspirations. The billion-dollar super garden complex features towering tree-like vertical gardens which measure between 25 metres and 50 metres in height. These are not trees, nor are they made of trees. Instead, they are a canvas upon which Singapore's response to climate change is projected. Nestled within the grove is a theatre which keeps the short film Plus 5 on loop. The firm forecasts that by 2100, global average temperatures will rise by 5 degrees Celsius, leaving the Earth a dry rock dying in space. As the timeline rapidly reserves, as the timeline rapidly reverses, the narrator counsels the necessity of taking certain adaptations in dimensions like technology, farm practices, and policy. What exactly do these practices mean, and will they be enough in changing the course of human destruction? To be sure, Singapore has been quietly preparing for sea level rise for over two decades. Since the early 1990s, new reclamation and construction projects have been required to double the expected sea level rise and vulnerable highways are being elevated. Already, 70-80% to 80 of Singapore's coast is lined with hard walls or gradated stone embankments. The government also consults with international firms to make contingency plans, which include constructing dikes and sea walls, as well as underground housing and floating buildings. Terraforming, after all, has been a central feature of Singapore's history and evidence of its relevance is still widely visible today, not least in the fact that the super trees as well as public housing complexes and petrochemical refineries were built on reclaimed land. To Singapore's credit, these achievements are undoubtedly instrumental in safeguarding its viability and security as an island nation. And one might argue that such may not be possible without the firm hand of a stable and paternalistic government, which, unlike the revolving door politics of liberal democracies, managed to translate its vision of a garden city into official policy. So critical and integral was greening, in fact, that the late founding father, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, styled himself as Singapore's chief gardener. Today, Singapore is an eco-modernist paradise, a dense metropolis with manicured green trim. 
But for all its resplendent beauty and lush greenery, there is no mistaking that the state maintains a narrow interest in nature. Lee recognised that greenery could serve as a signifier of stability, prosperity and control, and acknowledged the economic function of tree planting program in speeches, interviews and his memoir. He contends, no other project has brought richer rewards to the region. In the same vein, Singapore's switch of primary energy source from petroleum to natural gas in the early 2000s was prompted by the regional availability of natural gas as much as it was by emissions considerations. Its expertise in recycling wastewater was also at least in part motivated by its lack of freshwater resources. Regardless of its intentions, Singapore's success in adapting to environmental stresses illustrates the merits of its command approach to environmental management and makes Singapore a model of contemporary green urbanism. Sherman and Smith wrote in their book that Singapore, as an illiberal democracy with minimal parliamentary opposition and restrictive laws, most closely approximates a benign platonic aristocracy and will therefore serve as an appropriate prototype for eco-authoritarian approach to environmental adaptation and mitigation. Given the scale and speed at which climate change is occurring and is expected to shape the future, many environmentalists would find a swift and efficient top-down energy transition more than acceptable and welcome eco-authoritarian results-driven administration. But adapting to climate change is just half the battle. In fact, it merely forestalls the worst effects of climate change. Learning to cope with a blighted landscape is not the same as working to diminish the likelihood of it being blighted. Despite Singapore's super trees and anthropogenic greenery, it is still one of the least sustainable places in the world. The World Wildlife Foundation's Living Planet Report assigns Singapore the world's seventh highest per capita ecological footprint. While government officials assert that Singapore is but a humble island with few resources and thus lacks the means and capacity to do much, the reality that it has not done enough remains. In official climate negotiations, the country has held on to its status as a developing nation, which diminishes its expectations for emissions cuts and contributions to the Green Climate Fund. Singapore only introduced a modest carbon tax to some of its largest carbon emitters as late as 2017, and much more remains to be done in areas like reducing consumption, welcoming environmental refugees, and leveraging the country's wealth to invest in sustainable resources and practices. For a country whose economic development is established on embracing neoliberal capitalism and materialist consumerism, Singapore's treatment of the environment could be characterised by a business-as-usual mentality. In 2016, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long went out of his way to, quote, assure all the energy and petrochemical companies here that the Singapore government stands fully behind them and will continue to help them to succeed. Eco-authoritarianism, for all its potentialities, is not without its blind spots. Without a robust culture of public deliberation and civil discourse, there is little pressure to effectively bring the ruling government to reconsider its trajectory and position. The absence of democratic deliberation in environmental management is not without reason. The Singapore government takes public relations seriously, for its reputation for environmentalism is as much an economic boon as it is an element of Singapore's national identity. One could regularly hear tourists, permanent residents and scholars refer to Singapore as green and convey sentiments that suggest its virtues in protecting the environment, despite data and experience to the contrary. In 2016, the BBC's 
Planet Earth 2 series saw Sir David Attenborough describe Singapore as the best example of a city living in harmony with nature. Eco-authoritarianism rears its ugly head in national greenwashing, which in this case refers to the exaggeration of initiatives and achievements in the area of environmental conservation and protection, and possibly the obfuscation of evidence to the contrary. In his 2015 intended nationally determined contribution to the UNFCCC, Singapore pledged to decrease its emissions intensity by 36% in 2030 from 2005 levels, though its total emissions would continue to rise for more than a decade. To its advantage, Singapore's size means that it will never have to account for a large percentage of global emissions. Singapore's complicity and culpability in magnifying the suffering that climate change brings to the region to vulnerable populations in places like Indonesia, the Philippines and Bangladesh should not be dismissed or disregarded. But this responsibility is not merely about its carbon footprint. It is also about its wealth, its infrastructure, its centralised organisation and capacity for adaptation. In the decades to come, where climate refugees are projected to increase in numbers, Singapore may return to its former status as an island fortress. A government official reiterated this position in 2015, saying that Singapore is not in a position to accept any persons seeking political asylum or refugee status due to its being a small island country with limited land. For all its success in curating and disciplining the land, Singapore's model of eco-authoritarianism may not be the solution that the world needs. Not at a time where concerted, global-oriented climate action is more important than ever before. Ironically, the idea of Fortress Singapore describes the failed wartime strategy for defending Singapore back when it was still a colonial outpost. Talk of the bastion of the East as an impregnable fortress was swiftly silenced upon its contact with the surprisingly formidable Japanese forces. If the analogy serves, perhaps it would not be wise to place our bets in the best laid plans of eco-authoritarian Singapore. This episode is brought to you by the UNUS Society for Academic Research, a student organization in UNUS College. It is written by Austin Ng of Class of 2021 and edited by Rainer Ng, Class of 2022. The music you hear is composed by Nico Nazareth of Class of 2022.